And happy Palm Sunday to all of you. My name's Chris, and I have the uh, wonderful joy of being here on staff. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how it is that a crowd who gathers to celebrate the coming King on Palm Sunday moves from cheering to jeering by Friday. And hopefully in the process of uncovering this story and exploring it a little further, we'll discover something about ourselves as well. We'll discover how it is that we can be shifted and moved and even nudged by just the suggestion of a majority. And in the midst of discovering that and understanding how we are moved and nudged by a majority, we'll discover how it is unwillingly and unwittingly we can actually participate in injustice. So why is it when we sit and we look at and we reflect upon this holy week that kicks off today, how is it that a crowd who was so in support of Jesus, who followed Jesus around the countryside to discover and see his miracles, to witness and become part of his uh, very authentic and authoritative teaching? How is it that this crowd that was so privy to so much in so little time could move from following Jesus and being convinced that he is God's son and Messiah, be convinced from those things to fleeing and watching him become crucified on a cross? How is it that people who witnessed these miracles, these wonderful things taking place, and saw incredible things they'd never seen before, could move and actually become participants in one of the greatest tragedies of all of history? Why is it that the crowds would go from cheering to jeering? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story, but we're also going to talk a little bit about some experiments that have been conducted to try to discover how it is that human nature thinks and how it works. And hopefully through that, we'll discover a little bit about ourselves as well. We're going to look at how injustice gets carried out by a majority who, if individually interviewed, would probably not participate in that injustice. So we're going to discover some things about how we work as humans. And hopefully through that discovery then become convicted about how we could operate and and relate differently in our lives. So let's jump off. Today is Sunday. And Sunday is Palm Sunday. And this Sunday, all those millennia ago, Jesus, we find in Luke chapter 19, tells his disciples to go and they will find a colt tied up. And they are to remove that colt. And if the owner asks who it's for... They are to say it is for the Lord. They take the colt back to Jesus near the Mount of Olives. He mounts the colt. The colt obviously symbolic of of coming in peace. And so Jesus is put upon this colt and he is led down the road to the cheers of the crowd who see him coming in victory. And so we pick up with the story in Luke chapter 19. It says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd is kind of get this in mind, the whole crowd, all of this group gathers, this crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. They are openly in alignment with Jesus. They are openly associating themselves with Jesus. And all of the Roman government through the soldiers and the ruling parties in that area and region are noticing and they're watching. All of the religious authority and establishment, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law are observing. And they openly align themselves with this Jesus as they praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. 
And so Luke notes that it's not just out of some blind alignment, but it's actually because of the witness of things that they have seen. Continuing on verse 38, he says that he records that uh, they begin to cheer. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so you get this picture of palm branches waving and the disciples cheering Jesus' coming and entry into Jerusalem and they're praising God for all the miracles that they had seen. And they're fully aligned. They are fully in alignment with who Jesus is. But what happens in five short days? Why is it that in five short days we move from this cheering to jeering? Well, Friday comes and it's Friday that the whole thing turns. And we find in Luke chapter 23, as he records for us, that Pilate calls together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man, the one who is inciting the people to rebellion. So Jesus is charged with inciting people to rebellion. Take note of that because you're going to need to tuck that in your brain for what comes up a little later. So hold on to that for a moment. The man, Jesus, is charged with inciting a rebellion. Pilate continues, I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And so Pilate, being the ruling entity within that region, has come to the determination that through investigation, research, and trial, that Jesus is innocent of inciting rebellion. A Gentile in power has concluded that Jesus is innocent despite the charges of his own people. Continuing, Luke records, neither has Herod, by the way. So Jesus has stood not one trial, but two trials in which he is found to be innocent, Pilate suggests. For he sent him back to us, as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Jesus' own people have discovered and charged him with crimes that Herod and Pilate have found him completely innocent of. Luke continues, Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Pilate's decision is that Jesus is not guilty of the charges. Justice has been served. He has stood trial before not one judge, but two. And both have declared him innocent of inciting rebellion. And so Pilate says, I will punish him. Because he probably did something wrong somewhere along the line. And then I'll release him. Story over. But it's not. We know the story isn't over. Luke continues to record for us. But the whole crowd shouted, Now, how is it that a judge can decide that a person is innocent and an entire crowd has declared him guilty? How is it that this same crowd who just had moments before gathered out in front of the Jerusalem gates and were cheering and in alignment with Jesus and only five short days later are in disagreement with justice and reason? The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. You see, the Roman government held a man by the name of Jesus Barabbas on a different charge. 
And it was kind of during this feast that there was a tradition that Pilate could release one person from prison. And so the crowd begins to shout for the other person. The one who most likely was guilty, the one who had been found guilty and was ready to be sentenced. The one that was not only found guilty, but was actually sentenced to die, he was on death row. And the crowd begins to cheer for the guilty one and to punish the innocent one. How is it that a group just moments ago is cheering for Jesus and goes from cheering to jeering? The whole crowd shouted, we want you to release Barabbas to us. Moving on, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Jesus is charged with inciting rebellion, a charge he is found innocent of. Jesus Barabbas is charged with insurrection and murder, a charge he has been found guilty of. What happens in this drama? Continuing, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. I think if we read through this too quickly, we miss the fact that Pilate wants to release Jesus. That the one who should have been against Jesus, this Gentile ruler, is actually for Jesus. And the people who should have been for Jesus are actually against Jesus. And so Pilate, wanting to release him, appeals to them again. It's almost as if he's begging them to reconsider. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And you can hear the chants echoing in your own ears this morning. How is it that this crowd, just moments ago, went from shouting Hosanna in the highest to God be glory? So the next moment, the words passing across their lips are crucify him, crucify him. Luke continues to record that for the third time, Pilate tries once more. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? Why? Isn't it interesting that Pilate appeals to the crowd three times, Peter disowns Jesus three times, Jesus is in the grave three days. For the third time he spoke to them and he asked the question, the question that's on all our minds this morning, why? The question that's on all our minds as it relates to injustice in the world as we look out across the world and we see violence and we see people doing horrific things to each other and we see what's going on in Syria right now with innocent children and we are appalled and we, like Pilate, stand and we ask, why? What crime has this man committed? And Luke continues to record for us, I have found no grounds for the death penalty. It seems that Pilate was, there was a suggestion that perhaps some punishment was due. That's why he said, I'll punish him and release him. But he has found no grounds for the death penalty. Oh, grounds were found for Jesus Barabbas. That trial's been done and settled. One of them will hang on a tree. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. And he says it again, appealing to the crowd a third time. It's interesting that the people who should be against Jesus are for Jesus and the people who are supposed to be for Jesus are actually against Jesus. What is going on? 
What's happening in these moments? Luke continues to say this. But with loud shouts, the crowd insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts, Luke says, prevailed. Their cries for crucifixion of an innocent man prevailed over and against justice. How is it that that happens? How can a crowd of people become so convinced of what's right when they are so clearly wrong? What is it in our human nature? What is it that causes this to happen when we get together and we reason with one another? Luke says, so Pilate decided to grant their demand. You see, Pilate was put in place by the Roman government. He was put there for a very specific purpose. Two of them, in fact. The governor of a region put in power by the Roman government was to do two things. Keep the peace and collect the taxes. That's the only thing Pilate was concerned about. So when Pilate appeals to the crowd for a third time, please don't do this thing, you understand that he is running up against one of his purposes, which is to keep the peace. And yet, at the very end of it, because that is one of his purposes, he grants their demand. Because there could be an uproar. There could be a riot if he doesn't. So it is the crowd that determines what justice is, not the individual who sees it because of the political nature involved. Luke continues to record for us by saying this, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered the innocent one to their will. And in this moment, the Jesus that you and I love, we follow, we worship, the Jesus who intrigues us to be here even this morning, becomes the innocent victim of a group of people who think they are seeking justice but are pursuing injustice all the same. How is it that good people who gather and worship and praise Jesus just five days earlier, how is it good people who are mothers and fathers, who are sons and daughters, who are brothers and sisters, who have followed Yahweh and the way, come to be convinced in five days, that Jesus is their enemy. Well, some experiments have been conducted across history to understand how these things come about. So I thought we'd jump into it just to sort of kind of help us understand a little bit about how we think and the, why, the reasons we think. And so one of the experiments was done by the state of Minnesota in collecting taxes. And in 1996, what they decided to do, because they wanted to up tax revenue, is they sent out four different letters to the entire state of taxpayers. So literally a quarter of the state got one letter, a quarter another, and so on. The first letter talked about the benefits of paying your taxes. It appealed to the citizenry to please pay your taxes. They're due by this date. And when you pay state taxes, here's what it goes for. It funds police and it funds hospitals. It helps people uh, who are impoverished uh, come out of poverty and to to have a fighting chance in this economy. It, It supports your parks and the recreation that you enjoy. It appealed to a whole swath of things that uh, Minnesotans would, would, would enjoy. 
And it said, if you pay your taxes, this will benefit it. Another letter they sent out talked about the consequences. It said, if you do not pay your taxes by this date, this is going to happen. We will pursue you. You will be fined a certain amount. and There'll be a late fee incurred and interest will accrue. And you might even face prison time if you continue to not pay your taxes. And these are the consequences if you don't. Another quarter of the letters talked about the help that was available. There are offices within each region of the state that you can walk into. You can receive help for paying your taxes. Well, not paying your taxes, but help in processing your taxes and answering your questions so that you pay them appropriately. There's a hotline. It's an 800 number. You can call this line. It will help you to sort of decide how best to pay your taxes and how to figure them out. And we want to make sure there's all the help available. And then the final one, which was interesting, is they sent a letter that talked about compliance. It said, here is the percentage of your fellow state members, citizens, who have paid their taxes. Here's the percentage of Minnesotans who have paid their taxes in full. And we just want to communicate that to you and, and help you to understand which one you should be a part of. So these four letters went out, and it was an experiment to find out which was most effective in collecting tax revenue. And you would probably like to know which one it was, which I'm not going to tell you right now. So, continuing. There are two ways of thinking that psychologists call automatic thinking and reflective thinking. And so in studying this and kind of understanding how it is that people work and how they work and operate within communities, psychologists have said there, there are two kind of primary ways that we think. One is automatic and one is reflective. Automatic thinking are those things that you can do automatically. So you can drive a car and you can have a conversation with somebody next to you. And in driving the car, you know when to stop, where to turn, those sorts of things. It's automatic thinking. But if you were driving a car and then I asked you to multiply 60 times 15, you'd have to stop driving the car. Do you understand? Because what will happen is when reflective, when, when we can't do the automatic thinking and we at, we're being asked to do something that requires reflective thinking, our automatic thinking has to shut down so that we can do the math. Does that make sense? So if we're driving in the car and we're having a conversation and somebody says, what would you prefer for lunch, Mexican or Chinese? We can make that decision while we're driving because the automatic thinking isn't overwhelmed by that, by that decision. The reflective thinking doesn't take a lot of engagement to say, well, I like Chinese or I like Mexican. But to do a math problem, it requires us to stop what we're doing and actually focus. And so it requires the engagement of our automatic thinking to, to be able to do the reflective process. Now, here's the interesting thing about thinking. Our automatic thinking is about 99% of who we are. Psychologists would say that reflective thinking is actually the 1% of who we are, and this is the part that we think we, this is who we think we are. So when we go about our day and we, we think things about ourselves, like, you know, I'm really good at this, or, you know, I'm this kind of person, or I get angry too easily, that's the reflective part of who you are, and that's only 1% of who you are. What psychologists are ultimately saying is that there is a, ultimately an iceberg that sits below the surface that is who you really are that is unknown to you. We sort of just function out of it automatically. That's why when somebody says something and we react and we're like, whoa, where'd that come from? I can't control it. Your reflective thinking is saying, whoa, where'd that come from? I can't control that. Your automatic thinking is the thing that's doing it. And you stop for a moment and you go, whoa, where'd that come from? 
It's your automatic thinking. This is 99% of who we are. This is our makeup. This is the part of us that only God knows. That in moments of, of reflective thinking, we can actually begin to understand our automatic processes, but ultimately it sort of operates below the surface. It's our reflective thinking that is the 1%. And the problem is, is that we think the reflective part of who we are is actually 99% of who we are, and the automatic's like 1%. It's like that closed closet door we don't really talk about. The point is, is that really who you are is the whole house, and it's like the, the small little closet in your living room is really who you are, or who you're aware of who you are. So what, is, what does all this mean? Now, Chris, what does all this have to do with what you're talking about? Just hold on a minute. Because I want to take you to another experiment before I tell you which letter was most successful, and then I'm going to see if you can guess. This experiment was done by Solomon Ash, and it was called the Line Experiment. It was done in the 50s, and he performed this experiment in the 50s to try to discover, as many scientists did, why it is that the evils happened within Nazi Germany, while wonderful, uh, otherwise gentle, loving good people would participate in such horrific acts as turning in their neighbors to the Third Reich and being a part of the Holocaust. And so they wanted to discover what, what is it that, that a bunch of, of wonderful people, how, how is it they could cooperate in this? And now you can start to see the relevance of what we're talking about. How is it a whole crowd can go from cheering to jeering? And so he did this experiment in the 50s and here's what he did. He set up a room, and within the room on a wall, he put a series of lines that were all the exact same length. Legitimately, they were the same length. He measured them, and he put them up on the wall. He then brought in 10 people, let's say. And of the 10 people, nine were cooperating with him, but the one who was the experiment didn't know this. So the 10 people walk in. The one who is unaware of what's going on thinks that he or she is just part of the 10 who have been brought in to be asked a series of questions. And so the 10 enter the room, nine work for Solomon, and they are confederates, they are part of this experiment, except the one doesn't know it. And they are asked right there in the room, which line looks like it's the longest? Now remember, legitimately, these lines are all the same length. The nine who are cooperating pick one of the lines and they say that one is the longest. Guess what the one does? Agrees with them. You see, we are 99% automatic thinkers. It's that 99% that gets nudged by the crowd. That causes us self-doubt. It causes our reflective thinking self-doubt and we begin to think... No, they're all the same length, but they don't think so, so maybe, maybe my perception's off. And we begin to doubt ourselves. And suddenly, that one person is swayed by the majority and becomes an unknowing participant in something that is wrong. Well, this experiment gets replicated later on after Sol Solomon Ash, and here's what they did. They, they broadened the experiment a little, little bit, and here's what they did. So they brought in 10 people, but, but here's the difference, Okay. They brought in 10 people, one person was the experiment, nine were on the inside. And here's what they did. Eight of them said, this line is longer, but one of them was told to say, no, they're all the same. And do you know what happened to the one who was the experiment? He or she decided in agreement with the one who stood against the eight. Isn't it interesting? It takes one person one person to say, no, that's not right. For the innocent person to say, 
I agree. It's interesting that even though a majority will say something, it takes one person to say, no, that, I don't agree with that, that it nudges another person to say, I don't agree either. Fascinating experiment. So, back to Minnesota. Can you figure out which one worked? They found that when they sent the letter that said, here is the majority of people who have paid their taxes, by the way, which is over 90%, that more people who received that letter actually complied than all the others. There's something about the majority. There's something about being nudged by the crowd. There's something about a voice saying something that whether we like it or not, whether in our right minds we would say, but if I was in that experiment, that wouldn't happen. By the way, they replicated this over and over and over again. There's something within us that gets nudged by the crowd. And I think we're beginning to dig down and understand how it is that the crowd could shout one day, Hosanna, and the next day, crucify him. And do you know why? Here's why. Jesus' friends left. The scripture records that his disciples, not just the 12, but his disciples fled. They weren't present. Do you know whose friends stayed? Barabbas' friends stayed. You see, the disciples' voices were missing because they went missing. And the crowd was swayed toward injustice by a few voices who began the chant, release Barabbas to us. Release Barabbas to us. His friends, his family, probably began the chant and everybody joined in. That is how good people who think that they seek justice end up unwitting participants in a history of injustice. And if you think that you are the one who wouldn't be persuaded, you're wrong. What would have happened that day how would this story be different if Jesus' disciples, just one, had stayed? If just one had began the chant they began five days ago and continued it through Friday? Here's the greatest part of this story. Jesus' friends may have left and Barabbas' Barabbas's friends may have stayed. But here's the beauty of this, that despite the persecution, unfair treatment, and even the foreknowledge of what was going to happen, Jesus remained. And he remains in your life, and he remains in my life, because Jesus isn't swayed by the majority. Jesus is justice. And he stood through all of it for you and for me. And we knew he had the power to get himself out of it, for he says to Pilate elsewhere, don't you think that if I called on my heavenly father that he would come in a horde of angels and rescue me? I stand here before Pilate because I remain in your life. And I will take on injustice so that justice can be done. Jesus' disciples left, Barabbas' friends stayed, but Jesus in your life will always, always remain because Jesus is justice.
And he took it on for you and he took it on for me. And let's remember that this week as we worship him. And in closing, as you look out across the world and you see injustice, not just on the news or around you, but right there in your own life, in your family, in your neighborhood, workplace, people you recreate with. The question for you and me in this, as we look at all these experiments and this history, is where is your voice needed? Where is it that your voice would make all the difference in the silence? Where is it that your voice would make all the difference when all the other voices are saying something opposite? Because as people, of, who pe- pe- as people who are followers of Jesus, who is justice, we are people who also pursue justice because we love Jesus. Where is your voice needed? Where is it needed in your community? Where is it needed in your workplace? Where is it needed in your family? How can you speak up for those that can't speak up for themselves? And how can you speak up and speak into things where others are speaking against that thing. Because silence is always compliance. Think of all the people in Germany who cooperated just through their silence. Think of all the people who cooperated in the injustice of Jesus being crucified because they were silent as well. Will you be silent or will your voice be heard?